This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello and welcome back to the Sustainable-ish podcast. Massive apologies for the unintended and very abrupt break that happened in uh, broadcasting. I had a lot of interviews lined up which all uh, went out and then life happened and everything got a bit too much and I kind of fell off the edge of the podcast for a little bit, so I hope you will accept my apologies. Uh, I couldn't not put this interview out, though. This interview I actually recorded today, this afternoon, um, and apologies for the drop in quality of the editing. Um, It's all been edited myself rather than my wonderful um, editor, Emily, um, because of the sort of timescale that is involved and it felt really important that this podcast goes out as soon as possible. In today's episode, I am chatting to an incredible human being, goes by the name of Angus Rose. Some of you might have seen Angus in the news earlier on this year when he embarked on a hunger strike to ask all MPs to receive a scientific briefing about the science of climate change and its impacts on the UK. Now, Angus was on hunger strike for 37 days. That's over five weeks. I get antsy if I'm probably five hours without food. Um, So I can't even imagine the mental and physical resilience and determination that is needed for five, over five weeks worth of hunger strike. And he's really clear in this conversation and uh, all the way through that He was prepared to die to have his demands met. And I'm super aware that these might sound like the words of some crazy extremist, but please listen to this and you will hear that Angus is absolutely anything but. And I think the fact that he had to go to such measures for what is an eminently reasonable request to be met is absolutely staggering. It was hugely humbling to speak to Angus about what led him to decide that this was the path he was going to take, about the physical and mental impacts that the hunger strike had, and super importantly, what we all need to do now to ensure that his sacrifice, the challenges, the everything that he went through has the greatest impact possible. So the briefing that Angus was requesting is now taking place on the 11th of July and it is imperative that as many MPs as possible attend and this is where we come in. So while you're listening to this, 
after you've listened to this, head over. There's a link in the show notes. It's a link on change.org and I will link to that in the show notes and I will link to that on all the social media posts for this podcast. Head over to that link. It will help you to find out who your MP is if you don't already know and how to get in touch with them. There is a template letter on there that you can send to your MP to let them know about the briefing and asking them as your political representative to attend. And then share the link far and wide. Let people know that you've signed it. Ask friends, family and colleagues to also contact their MPs because the more letters and emails that MPs get, the more likely they are to attend. So often, climate action feels overwhelming. And in the grand scheme of things, I absolutely am here with you guys feeling that it can be difficult to feel like we can move the dial enough to have an impact. This is huge. This is an action we can take that could have a huge impact. If enough MPs attend, it not only sends a very clear signal that this is an issue that our politicians are taking seriously, but it also has enormous potential to impact policy decisions around climate. And it will take five minutes. We might not all feel able to move our climate action up to the level of Angus's, but we can all show our appreciation for the sacrifices and risks that he has taken with just five minutes of our time. So please, 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 if everybody listening to this went over to the change.org website, found out their MP, emailed them, I promise you it will make a huge difference and it's five minutes out of your day that could have a real significant impact on climate policy and literally on the next hundreds and thousands of years for humanity. Hey, for five minutes of your time, it's not often you get to have that kind of impact, is it? Um, So enjoy this episode. Please do get in touch with Angus. I will pop all of his um, socials on, uh, on the show notes as well. But more importantly, please do get in touch with your MP. Um, let me know. Uh, email me jen at sustainableish.co.uk. Let me know that you've done it. Let me know uh, when they've replied. Let me know what they've said. Um, and, you know, share, share, share. Let's see how many MPs we can get coming along to this briefing. Thank you so much in advance. Hello, Angus. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there, Jen. Uh, thank you for, oh, it's great to be here. Great to meet you as well. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this because uh, you've had a bit of a crazy, I don't know, few months or year or like, not quite sure what to say. But can you can you tell us your story? Well, I was, um, you know, I, I did a 37 day hunger strike and I was a little bit naive because running, well, you know, once the strike ended, I thought a lot of the pressure would be off and I could take time out. I could reflect on what had happened and really importantly, kind of just kind of get away from uh, just to have some space, some time by myself to kind of make sense of what had happened. And uh, But I quite underestimated the amount of work involved in getting the briefing organised. So there's currently a whole team behind the scenes, scientists, media people and others who are trying to organise the briefing. So we've we finally got a date, which is fantastic. You know, it took like quite a long time to to get a a, a date for the briefing. So it's going to be on the um, afternoon, uh, Monday, the eleventh of July, and we're still trying to sort out the recording. So recording is really important because that's going to be uh, making the briefing briefing available to the public. And if if that's achieved, it will be the UK's first ever 
high-level science briefing on the climate risks and impacts and strategies towards net zero. So I think that's going to be really important. We had something similar for COVID by yes. the Chief Medical Officer, Sir Chris Twitty. So we also need something, a briefing, a science briefing on the climate crisis. Yeah. Because it's undoubtedly the biggest issue we face. Right. Let's rewind a little bit. So you you just kind of said, oh, I did a 37-day hunger strike. Talk to us about, I guess, what made you think or decide that you needed to do that and what your what I feel was a very reasonable request was, what your what your request was. How did how did that all come about? And actually, going back even before that, what was your kind of um, I, I somebody used this term to me and I quite like it sort of eco-epiphany at what point did you realize like this is as you just said this is the biggest issue facing us and, and we need to do something about it can you take us right back to the beginning yeah yeah sure thanks um good question and uh please excuse me for a little bit off track um, sure. my memory and concentration on back to normal so wow. a little bit challenged there but um so I study electronic engineering as part of my studies, I covered physics and chemistry. And so even a long time back, it wasn't too difficult for me to understand the key elements of the CO2 greenhouse effect. And then beyond that, understanding the significant risks that lie ahead for all of us, mm. but more importantly, for my nephews and nieces, niece. So I've got five nephews and a niece. So um, yes, I understood the... Um, the issue, and then kind of looking maybe, uh, what's it, 2022 now? So maybe uh, more than 10 years ago, I was involved in various marches, like there used to be some big marches through London and so on. Um, I went to a lot of talks on climate change um, at a place like Imperial or LSE and other places. Um, I mean, like one of the things I did was, you know, there was... Um, what is it? And it was a talk at Imperial, and one of the speakers, so it's full of scientists doing talks, but one of the people who spoke was um, uh, a representative from Shell Oil wow. that funds Imperial. Um, so he stood up and, and, and he was he was like, no, it's not as bad as you think it is, and oil's going to have to be around for a lot longer part of the economy. We can't do away with this. And, and there was a very loud boo from the whole audience. And so kind of following on from that day long meeting, I kind of, myself and some other students got together and some other people and we thought we better do something. Like, what can we do? We've been on marches um, and myself and, and another um, a student co-founded a climate action group focused on the climate talks in Paris in 2015. So I've been involved in many different things over the years. And as you know, the science has just become increasingly clearer um, and the impacts are becoming more significant, even now impacting the UK. So we can see the, you know, the UK's big, biggest risk is with water. Mm. Either too much water, like flooding, crop failure, um, the filing of, water, of the water supply, droughts, coastal erosion and also sea level rise. So those are the impacts we can now see. Uh, here in the UK, we used to think the issue was like in a different nation at a different time. Mm. But it's actually here and now. I mean, the Syrian refugee crisis was in part, in part driven by climate change. So kind of 
rolling on, we've had various IPCC reports. ARR5 was in 2013, 2014, 2013. But then more recently, we've got ARR6, and we've got the Working Group 2 report that's more recent, was earlier this year, and that talked about the impacts. And so if you look at that, if you also look at the fact that um, the UK uh, hosted COP26, and we still hold the COP presidency until uh, COP27 later this year. If we also look at the, the London had its first ever red alert, which was due to extreme winds. So there was a spate of crazy storms at, I don't know, three Beginning of this year, wasn't it? So sort of February time. Yeah, so if you look at all of that, and scientists are now, rather than being quiet, they're now standing up and become very vocal. Um, so in the context of all that, I thought originally, I, I didn't think I was going to do a hunger strike, but then I thought maybe I need to do a hunger strike. Um, but then actually took it one step further. I mean, if I was a Ukrainian living in Ukraine, I would be risking my life to protect, to defend, um, you know, the, the, the safety of my family and the people I care about, my community. Yeah. So the step I took over here, I see the risks over here from climate change with a lot of clarity. A lot of people here, I think the issue is sometime in the future and they don't have to worry about it. Yeah. But I see it very, very clearly. And so David King, the former chief scientific advisor for the UK said that, um, you know, the next three or so years will determine the future of humanity. The oh. UN pretty much says, says the same. The International Energy Agency, the middle of last year, said there can be no fossil fuel extraction projects. If we look at the UK's government's current actions or policies, they're aiming for a world that's two and a half to three degrees warmer, let alone the one and a half that was they agreed to in Paris. So yes, I ended up not embarking on a on a on a death wish. You know, I wasn't in a suicide mission, but you know, I was certainly risking my life on this most important issue. So I think one way to describe it is it would be better for me to break than my nephews and niece not to have a future. And I wow. think keeping those who are most important to us, you know, children, grandchildren, and so on, keeping them in our minds when we make big, important decisions, I think, you know, my level of, of activism kind of is in line with the level of risks that many of in East face. And I think that's what's lacking. That's what's lacking with many of our decision makers in government. Yeah. So how did you, I'm sure, I mean, I, I find everything completely overwhelming, everything, uh, well, pretty much everything at the moment, isn't it? Uh, you know, very overwhelming, exactly as you've just described, and the inaction that we're seeing, and even worse than inaction, it feels like government moving in completely the wrong direction or governments moving in completely the wrong direction at the moment. Um, how did you decide what your ask was going to be? Because you could have gone, I want all fossil fuel extraction to be stopped. Do you know, like, I, I've, every time I've sort of, um, you know, shared anything about what you've been doing on social media, I've said like, this is an incredibly reasonable request it's insane that somebody has to go to this level to to do this to achieve this um so did you you know of all the things you could have asked for was how did you decide on that basically I guess so it was so lucky so fortunate I um 
I spoke to Guillermo Fernandez. So Guillermo is a dad of three who went on a 39-day hunger strike late last year. He was also risking his life. He was also prepared to die if the demand wasn't met. And so what happened was he started on his hunger strike and it was during the first week he had what is key support and they, she said to him during the first week, she just said, look, this demand is just not achievable. What, what was he asking for? So I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was kind of, he was asking for policy change from the government. Right. Um, and so during the week, he rapidly changed his demand from something that was unreasonable and unachievable, you know, 95% unachievable, mm. to the demand of merely asking for, from, in his case, environmental minister, to organize a briefing by their leading scientists of all of their 200 odd parliamentarians on the What country crisis. was this in? So, oh, sorry, that was in Switzerland. So, oh, okay. He had his hunger strike and burn in Switzerland for 39 days. And um, his demand ended up being met, thank goodness. Mm. But yes, I, I had many uh, long conversations with Guillermo before I started my hunger strike. So in the time running up to my the start of my hunger strike, which was the 14th of March, for quite a while I hadn't settled on a demand. Mm. So I was thinking about, well, and others had also been suggesting, you know, maybe ask the government to end fossil fuel projects, new fossil fuel projects and, th- and yes. ideas like that. Um, but then I changed my demand to be the same as Guillermo's in effect was, in my case, I was asking Greg Hans, the Minister of Energy, Clean Growth and Climate Change, to organize the briefing. And so I wasn't asking for any changes to, to government policy nor to the economy. Mm. It was as simple and as reasonable as yeah, just yeah. a briefing. Like, why haven't we had this briefing? Yeah. And, and, and I think really importantly in our case here in the UK, Boris had a briefing uh, in January 2020, and that led to a radical improvement of his understanding. Like, I don't know if you know, but before then, he was more than an overt skeptic. I mean, he was writing articles in places like, I think, in the Telegraph and other yes. papers, pretty much denouncing the science and saying it was a hoax and just like. But then he called his the briefing that he had his road to Damascus moment. And then a couple of other things was, you may have heard his speech, that's an utterly extraordinary speech they gave on the eve of COP26 late last year, the climate talks in Glasgow. And I had the TV on in the background and I could, I thought it was Boris who was giving the speech, but I couldn't believe what was being said. So I had to go in front of the TV. It's like, actually it was Boris. So, and then following on from that, uh, this year I've heard times like during, you know, this energy crisis, like how can we secure our energy supply? Um, He was talking about, yeah, the importance of nuclear and the importance of renewables and blah, 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 blah. And right tailed on, tagged onto the end was, oh, yes, we may need to, we may need to also have fossil fuel expansion in the North Sea. So there's some other couple of cases. That's just the way I read it. But I kind of see Boris is very much on board with the issue and the, the, that it is an emergency and needs to be treated as such. Yeah, I'd read uh, that... Um... 
some people might be familiar and if they aren't I'll, I'll post a picture of it in the show notes but often people talk about the hockey stick graph don't they which I think is is sort of CO2 emissions sort of being relatively stable and then suddenly absolutely shooting off and and yeah what I read said that that was his kind of complete like oh crap uh moment yes and and um it was only through a freedom of information request by the group called um, Carbon Brief that we knew about this. So if I didn't know about this, I would have started the hunger strike just asking for this eminently reasonable demand with not knowing that Boris had previously had that briefing. How did that so, briefing come about? Do you know? Um, I'm not sure, but it was also um, led by Sir Patrick Valance, yes. the UK Street Centre Advisor, I'm not sure how it was initiated, but that's something I, it would be interesting to mm. find out. Um, but uh, really importantly, as part of that briefing, it wasn't just a one-way kind of delivery of information. It was. It also included questions and answers. It's really important for someone who had been as a skeptic as Boris was that he could answer these big questions. Yes. Many of them are, are common to people who are uncertain about the science and could ask these questions and have answers delivered by Sir Patrick Valance, but there was also Professor Stephen uh, Belcher, who's the chief scientist at the UK Met Office. Okay. And so he is also, in a follow-up briefing, he um, also described more aspects of the science. So it's really important that these leading scientists are available to, to answer really important questions. Yeah. So... I think that's central to improving understanding. So if we look at our decision makers, a lot of them have received, you can imagine they've got the information about climate change from media, you know, uh, well-known newspapers, think tanks, YouTube videos. Yeah, probably in the same way that we do, yeah. Yes, so not, not really the best source of-, <laughs> Impartial of, of getting, scientific. Uh, yeah, to because uh, what Sir Patrick and others will do is they will distill the most important aspects of the science in both the risks, impacts, and solutions as it relates to the UK. Yes, and I would so, imagine that as as a politician, that as it relates to the UK bit, as selfish as as that might sound, um, for politicians especially, I guess this. And I think this is one of the issues we have with um, climate action globally, probably, is that lots of governments are on this four to five year election cycle. So lots of them are very reluctant to make decisions that might, you know, that won't be vote winners, but they're in the sort of greater good um, longer term. And so I guess if they can be really clear in their own minds about the impacts that we will suffer if, if no action is taken and the what those impacts might be or how much less they might be if action is taken that might help them in their own minds square that as how they can position that to voters i'm not sure i think it kind of a, it's a technical phrasing of it but it's kind of the people in northern latitudes uh, you know established you know western democracies a lot of those countries the citizens particularly in the past, have viewed climate change as something that was geographically and chronologically dif uh, yes. distant. So both in time and space, it was an issue that we didn't have to worry about now. So I think that's quite wrong because, as I was saying earlier, the Syrian refugee crisis was in part driven by climate stresses. It wasn't the only factor. It was part driven by the spike in 
food prices. Um, Ukraine, 2006 to 2008, I believe, had had a, a partial failure of their, their crops. Wow. And then also a lot of the crops who have been used for the generation of biofuels. And then northeastern Syria between 2006 and 2010 had a 900-year severe drought. Um, and um, 80, they lost 80% of livestock in uh, northeastern Syria, and 60% of their fertile land turned to desert. One and a half million people were, were forced to flee their homeland and headed to cities, and then three million people left destitute. And then in 2008, a senior uh, a Syrian government official said the country would become ungovernable. And so following on from that, people fled the country trying to save their lives, trying to save their children's lives, mm. and flooded southern Europe. And a lot of those refugees ended up in Germany, but some of them also made their way here out of desperation. And so that is a mere hint of what lies in store. Well, yeah, so, the science tells us that these once in 900 year events will become maybe even once every 50 years. And, and certainly that once every 100 year events will become once every yes. decade events. And, and yeah. So uh, uh, just a couple of uh, other bits of um, good things to look at. Earlier this year, uh, the Arctic had temperatures during a week that were 30 degrees centigrade higher than normal. And the Antarctic at the same time had temperatures in regions that was 40 degrees centigrade wow. higher than normal. Um, and then last year, uh, Italy had the highest ever recorded temperature in Europe. And last year, I think it was last year, earlier this year, Canada, last year. I think it was last uh, year, Canada, Canada had, yeah. Uh, 49.6 degrees centigrade. But yeah, here in the UK, uh, we had record flooding in early 2014, the worst flooding in 248 years. And yes, crop failure, and yes, the filing of water, which was on the news late last year, um so it's just it's just escalating up over time so and I think sometimes I don't know if that if this is a, a, a sort of potentially a, a failing we've had in climate communication is when we talk about degrees of warming when we talk about we're at 1.2 and we're trying to keep it below 1.5 and you know the government are looking at two and a half or three or whatever that doesn't sound like a big deal but when you actually talk about that at the polls we're looking at 30 degrees above what it would normally be 40 degrees what it would normally be that and yeah I just think it's sometimes maybe people don't grasp the like why one degree is a bit is is an issue and so actually there's a great video I don't know if you've seen it by um Catherine Hayhoe who's a um Canadian climate scientist and she does this whole thing about like well what's the big deal with one degree and she talks about the analogy of the human body and how crap we feel when we have a temperature of one degree and how things would start to break down if we had a temperature of two two and a half three degrees that was sustained and I think um that yeah we need to somehow get that across to people don't we that, that it sounds a really small amount and certainly here in the UK we'd be like awesome two degrees warmer summer brilliant but actually that the, the impact that that has is is catastrophic. I, I think that's so so important Jen I think it's really important to know the audience and to customize uh, or in a way the message for the audience because an audience of scientists would be able to take on board a lot of more technical information and make uh, better sense of it than someone who just thinks, well, what's 1.2 degrees to warming? Mm. Um, yeah, so it, what does it really mean? Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think communication has been our biggest problem in 
getting the information across to the public mm. and it's framed correctly. Um, yeah, that, that has undoubtedly been such a big challenge. But I think it's absolutely astonishing, isn't it, to think that our MPs, our decision makers, the people in charge of policy have never had a briefing on this. So as you say, the information they've been getting has just been whether or not they've chosen to, to tune into these messages and just been bits maybe they've seen on the BBC homepage or whatever newspaper they, they care to read. And so they are making huge decisions that affect the next hundreds, thousands of years with very little knowledge base to go on. And that's just completely astounding, isn't it? So, yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, unfortunately, groups, the likes of Global Warming Policy Foundation, mm. that is in part funded by fossil fuel interests in the US, had paid, in, in effect, paid for scientists, or some of them were legitimate scientists, others weren't scientists at all, to present what appeared to be uh, good quality research that in, in, in actuality had grossly misrepresented uh, current research, like grossly misrepresented. There was a great, um, um, I don't know if you listened to it, there was a great series, I think it was on Radio 4, where they, they talked about this and they showed how they'd mirrored the tactics that they'd used in the 50s and 60s from the tobacco industry and, and yeah. that it's been a very deliberate misinformation campaign, which just... Um, Beggar's belief, yeah. But it, it's been so effective. It's been so effective, but at least in, in our groups like Climate Outreach, which have, um, George Marshall is one of their, their team, but there's a lot of research, a lot of effort being put into trying to understand where did the communication go wrong and how can we better deliver the issue, the, the science and information about where we are at and what, mm needs to be done kind of going forward. Because I, I think kind of central, we, we can't expect the electorate to understand the issue and to vote in a way that reflects the understanding if they haven't got access to good quality scientific information. Yeah, I mean, um, the it, Citizens Assembly. That, yeah, the Citizens Assembly that happened, it was just before COVID, wasn't it? And I think it sort of ran into COVID. And I mean, that just seemed it seems now such a lost opportunity in that, so for people who haven't heard of this, I think they had a hundred people um, uh, sort of to represent the demographic um, spread across the UK. And they all had in effect, these series of kind of scientific briefings, didn't they? From the sort of leading uh, scientists and um, experts uh, around various different things. And then were asked to come up with what they felt would be solutions that, you know, that, that would sit well with, um, with the electorate and uh from what I can tell, the government have largely ignored that. But it feels like we should have one of those in every town, doesn't it? Like every town should have a citizens assembly to decide on what their local climate policy should be. And because then that gives politicians that mandate, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, if we look at the citizens assemblies and there not being a number of them, there was one in um, France that was supposed to be legally binding. But once the assembly had concluded with its recommendations, the the French government didn't abide by what they previously said would be, uh, you know, they would be committed to whatever mm. the assembly had found. But I think the, one of the key things about the assembly is it's it's representative, it's highly democratic because it's representative of the country's citizens. Mm. So, it, it, you know, it cuts across all uh, regions and all income groups and 
and so on. Um, and therefore, it is representative. Uh, so there, there'd be a lot of questions raised by people who have been critical of the idea of having a citizens' assembly advising uh, a government about what to do. Um, there, there, there was there, there was a referendum on abortion in Ireland mm. where they first had a referendum, but then they also had a citizens' assembly. And the conclusion of the citizens' assembly was within, I think, two percentage points of the result of the referendum. So that shows how closely aligned the, uh, an assembly's outcome can be with. Yeah. Um, but then also, if we look at the kind of demographics of our decision makers in government, as we know, many of uh, prime ministers, former prime ministers have been from places like Oxford or had certain types of education, mm. certain income brackets. And as best, however good the intentions may be, they will never understand fully what it means to be a certain demographic in this country. They will yes. never. So that's why it's, I think it's so important that the public is engaged. And the other aspect that's really important is because climate change by some has been described to be such a difficult or wicked problem. It's almost mm. intractable. It's so complex. We can't expect our decision makers to spend a large amount of time and, and you know it's it really does need to be given to um, uh, a group of people 100 people 150 people where they spend a lot of time trying to understand the the issue by leading experts informing them of the different aspects of the science and solutions um sorry i'm, I'm rambling a bit but um no it's it's absolutely it's that's all absolutely fascinating so you've at a position like if we take this on a timeline where you've like okay I've, I've decided that you know I need to step up my activism um hunger strike is is you know one of the options on the table presumably and, and this was going to be the the request that I'm going with how do you even start like because you did it outside the houses of parliament didn't you so do you just literally rock up with a chair and a sign or did you have like a team of people advising you had you already made contact with particular politicians like I just I mean, I don't suppose any of us think about how to start yeah. a strike. Then <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good question. So, you know, I saw there's a really unfortunate chap who was sitting outside. Was I, I was outside the one of the main exits to the House of Parliament, not far from Westminster Tube. And during my time there, there was a chap who pitched up, who was maybe 30, 40 meters away. Um, and he sat there against the wall, sat down on the ground. He had the sign in front of him. He was there for only three days, but it was something about he was fighting for the Home Office to hear his case. Wow. And it, it was terrible because he was there by himself as an individual. And that was the only voice he had was yeah. his sign, him, himself and the sign. And he was only there for about three days. And uh, it was terrible. Uh, but yeah, so I've, I've fortunately been done various things in the past, been part of various groups in the past. There was uh, Hannah, someone uh, who's, who's a dear friend of mine, is, um, you know, said she could help. And so Hannah was really good at making signs and, you know, some experience with media. But what happened in the days and weeks that followed the start of the hunger strike was actually extraordinary because out of the blue, people saw what I was doing, heard what I was doing, 
and said they would, whatever time they had available, many of them would do whatever they could to help to make mm. this a success. So uh, I think really importantly, the fact I was risking my life, I was prepared to die, was many people thought they would do whatever they could. And um, so, you know, they, they ended up being, I, I didn't, haven't really counted it. I think it's 40, mid 40, 44 maybe people behind the scenes who supported this Hunger Strike. Wow. So everyone, people on the ground who would help to, like up until maybe the first 10 days or so, I was carrying this placard and a chair and the umbrella to and from storage. And it just became so tiring and it was, it was terrible. But then someone said they could help with that. And so we ended up having people helping on the ground, people helping with logistics, media people, journalists, scientists, all behind the scenes. And a lot, of, quite a few of them are still working behind the scenes to organize this briefing and the recording of the briefing. So, Did you have any, like, medical advisors? Did you have anybody keeping an eye on you? Or? So I had, before I started the hunger strike, so I'd spoken to Guillermo who did 39 days. Um, and I've spoken to, in the past, other hunger strikers. One of them is a friend of mine who had done a 42-day hunger strike. Wow. Someone else in Australia did a 45-day hunger strike. So I kind of had that information. I think that was really, really important because that kind of demystified what hunger strike is and, and what happens during the time. But then I also relied on written accounts of what people had done. But there's not much research in this area because researchers, you know, medical doctors don't want to go into this because yeah. they want to save lives. They don't want to... Mm. You know, so there, there was, there were medical experts I'd spoken to before I started my hunger strike, and they gave me information about what they thought the risks were. And kind of the key thing, other than losing one's life if it's through starvation, dying through starvation, the biggest risk to the hunger striker is thinking, well, if they don't have comorbidities, like they don't have liver disease, kidney yeah. disease, gastro or in particular diabetes. You know, so I could have, if I was diabetic, I had the risk of running, um, running going into a diabetic coma. Yes. But the, the biggest risk for me when, were, when I ended my hunger strike was going back into food. So if you look at what happened in the following on from the, the Second World War, there are a lot of people who are in a state of long-term starvation. And medical science didn't have much information about it back then, but they, it was kind of, when people went back into food, many of them just started eating normally and died as a result of it because they end up having this thing called refeeding syndrome. Wow. So over time, over time, long-term starvation, the uh, electrolytes, primarily sodium, magnesium, phosphorus, and whatever, uh, depletes over time. Um, and then one, one, one goes back into food after having a large amount of food, what little of those electrolytes remain in the blood system are extracted from the blood system to be involved in digestion. And people often die from heart attacks. Wow. So there were two things I did during the hunger strike. The one was I was on a high dose supplementation of um, key minerals and also vitamins. And so 
as we went through the hunger strike, those didn't deplete much. But then also when I went back into food, I had to be really careful the amount of food I had. Yeah. So my good friend Hannah, she insisted that I go to hospital immediately after the hunger strike. And so I, I was there, I visited there. They wanted to keep me o- over for f- four or five days. So I was like, my mind wasn't in a good state at all. And yeah. I couldn't stay there. At, you know, so I visited there five days during the first week. And they fed me intravenously with uh, vitamins, electrolytes, and also tested my blood for things. Um, and then slow, very slowly, I started going back into food. So it's like really small amounts, 350 calories, 340 calories, first day, second day, 680, third yeah. day, 1,000. Um, so, yeah, that was the riskiest period, but uh, I got through it. And how do you even, I mean, this is like completely probably detracting from, you know, the the goal and what you were trying to achieve and things. But, I mean, God, I get so grumpy when I'm hungry and that's just, you know, if I've skipped lunch. I, the mental strength you must have needed to, to do that how did you carry on how did you do that yeah it's it's uh i think people you know normally if we go without food if you must breakfast or lunch by supper we just like ravenous uh, <laughs> and but it's quite different with the hunger strike it's not like you could one could imagine going without water you know going without water one would only survive maybe three five days or so yeah on the weather but um one would always be desperately thirsty. But going without food is not the same. So kind of days two to four are the most challenging during the earlier part of the strike. Um, one enters into a, a state, it's called keto adaptation or fat adaptation, where the body goes, okay, no more calories. It's taken all of the glycogen from the uh, energy stores in the liver. Um, but yes, definitely strong hunger pains during the first second day but part of the second day to the fourth day gets really tired um it almost feels like covid light it was really difficult to get out of bed but during that stage that period you know losing i started losing my appetite so you know by the third fourth day my appetite had gone wow so it's it's quite extraordinary like uh, that's something that i it seems a very um, weird feedback loop for the body to have. Yeah, and, but so uh, quite fortunate for that because there are a number of times there are two separate groups of people who walked past and taunted me. There were, there were, well, no, actually, it was more than that. Uh, just remembering there were people are taunting me with um, donuts and yeah. jelly babies. Oh. But there were, yeah, the two separate groups were those who were like, they're going to go to a shop and get a hamburger and bring it back and make sure that. I, I had it. You can smell it. And- so, but I was like, fine. I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, um, so that's kind of how it progressed. Yeah. Um, but then each following week, I just became more and more drained. But this uh, something is quite remarkable, and Guillermo had it as well. I think the couple of things, because I had the support team that grew up out of almost nothing, um, so I had a lot of support, which was really important. Also had a lot of interaction with the public. Mm. And even though Greg Hans turned the, down the demand so many times, I could see aspects of progress. So, so, so you were, how, how do you kind of 
go to him with that request was that via an email and then he'd just go no I don't and you'll be like don't if you see me I'm sat outside um you know haven't eaten for 14 days will you meet with me to discuss having this briefing and he was like nah did it just keep going like that yeah so I sent it on the first day was the 14th of uh March I sent the letter to Greg hands and then he replied five days later quite quickly and uh, <laughs> he, he just said he urged me to reconsider he was like so it, it wasn't a hard no but it was kind of a soft no is the way I think of it uh, and he, he did that again with a separate with another letter when I followed up again and um, then he met me in person outside the House of Parliament um, and we, we had a quite a reasonable conversation for 15 minutes we even joked a couple of times but again he urged me to reconsider uh, but it was really interesting to see how in person he was very adept at avoiding when he started talking about other countries are responsible for the issue and then I started talking about actually um, I can't remember what I said at the time but I mean you know the UK is the fifth richest country in the world, the Dutch Revolution started here. Yeah, with the historical Massive emissions. Historical we emissions, we benefit enormously. Mm. Um, and, you know, the world's richest 10% account for 50% of global emissions and all that yes. sort of stuff. So, but, yeah, so we had this conversation um, and he took out his card. It was like a business card. And on the back of it, he wrote down the name of the Speaker of the House, whose name okay. I kind of forget now, of House of Commons, but also Greg Clark, the head of the... Science and Technology Committee, and he handed me this card. He was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you take it. You contact them. You sort it out." Wow. I was like, "No, I don't think so." And then I followed up with an email, another email saying, "No, I'm just going to carry on." You know, he yeah. needs his responsibility. Um, and so then the next email he sent back to me, the third email was pretty much like a hard no. It was like, "Look, it's just." It's not going to happen. Like, but what were his reasons for that not going to happen? It, like, as I, I can't can't say this enough. Such a reasonable request. Like, why? What reasons have you got for saying nah? Well, he didn't say it when he was. Well, he kind of suggested when we spoke in person was that. Um, well, maybe did a volunteer. I don't know. But it was kind of the hostage. Uh, the the government. The government doesn't want to be seen to be agreeing to uh, like yeah. a hostage taken in a yeah, way or yeah. you know someone who's on track. so uh, from a political standpoint you didn't want to be seen to be agreeing to these demands as reasonable as they were uh, but uh, what I said to him definitely at the time was um, that anyone who say disagrees with some government policy how many of them are going to go and sit outside the house? It's a pretty extreme thing to do, yeah. And risk their <laughs> lives. So that's kind of, you know, and it's quite easy, you know, one would quite easily see that people, the vast majority of people wouldn't embark on that strategy. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, thank goodness for the incredible Caroline Lucas. I was uh, going to say, I'm sure, I'm sure I read that there was a... a you know, in her usual phenomenal way that she did some political shenanigans behind the scenes. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, as we know, she's just so eminently capable and she just achieves so much. Um, and I met her a couple of times, although she was always in a rush going somewhere. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so 
I think the most I managed to speak to Caroline was like 20 or 30 seconds. Wow. But during the parliamentary recess from the end of March to the, the, the it ended on the 19th of April, um, Caroline spoke to a number of people and, and because she chairs the all-party parliamentary group on climate change, it was within her capacity to organise such a briefing. So, mm. and then there was one final bit she had to, to sort out when uh, parliamentarians, you know, when it was the end of recess, she made another phone call on the 19th in the morning and then at two o'clock or so, she phoned me when I was outside the House of Parliament and she said, if she organised the briefing um, of Parliament and the Cabinet and made the recording available to the public, if she, you know, if she could organise that, would uh, in my hungry strike, and I was like, yes. And so it wasn't great hands, but it was ultimately the demand that the, demand was you know, the, 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 the result that I was looking for. Yeah. So you said right at the beginning, this, I mean, the the toll that it took on you. Physically, I mean, how much weight did you lose? I know that's a very crude measurement. Of- that's fine. It's um, I lost thirty-seven pounds. Of, well, it's it it just coincidentally worked out thirty-seven pounds of thirty-seven days. So it, it's kind of like um, it, it starts off steep and then it tapers off. Yeah. So the first week I lost seven kilos, which is I don't know how many pounds. Sixteen, seventeen then, pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Do so, the maths. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it tapered off really rap- quite rapidly. So after maybe three weeks, it was about two pounds every three days. Mm. So ultimately, I lost two stone and nine pounds, I think. But you 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 said earlier that your your memory and um, things are still oh. so so. It must have like the the. It's not literally just the weight loss, is it? And the physical effects. There are mental impacts and things as well. So yes, I mean that's a really important. The thing is, I thought the recovery would be um, uh, mainly, well, just physical. Yes. I was speaking to Guillermo, speaking to those other people who were in long-term hunger strike. They didn't really speak about mental recovery. So what I found quite a big impact on me was, um, well, there was I had this utter desperation in ending my hunger strike just to have time out. Yes. I mean, I, I was going... I wasn't staying there overnight, you know, so, but um, when I ended the hunger strike, I was just so desperate just to have time out. I've never had that ever in my life, but what I discovered was my memory, it was mainly my memory, but also my concentration had been impacted. Yeah. So I think it's things that happened further time in the past. I remember those more clearly, but yes. I think it's kind of the consolidation of newer memories, which is where my problems. So, um, about three weeks, two, three weeks ago, I was reading research about starvation, and what it said was people are in the state of long term starvation, you know, people who've got anorexia or whatever, they do, they will normally experience an amount of brain shrinkage. So, it's wow. literally a loss of brain cells. And it can take anything from six months to three years to recover most of that lost volume. Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I will repeat myself sometimes, we'll forget yeah. things or get a bit confused. Yeah. So, um, and what did your, I meant to ask you this earlier, like you, you've talked um, 
incredibly sort of passionately about the your concerns about the impact of climate on your nephews and your niece what did your family say to you yeah it was that that was such a big thing so it was only the month or maybe i i, I don't know maybe i took a note of it maybe about a month before that i i decided not just to do the hunger strike but um i was you know that i'll take the further step i, I mean I've, I've had many risks in my life in the past with riding a bicycle whatever and this would be another risk to my life, but uh, not reckless, but yes. measured because it was so eminently reasonable. Yeah, so I made a separate trip to my brother's family up in North Wales. And I went to describe, you know, I went to, and explained to them what I was going to do. And they, they, um, you know, as difficult as it was, they didn't, they saw it as my duty. Right. I think if there's yeah. one word that sums it up, it's my duty. Uh, there's been times I'd risk my life to save others. Um, and so this was just another case. And But then I made a separate trip to my sister's family in Wiltshire. And, um, you know, I had a conversation with my brother-in-law, my sister, and that didn't last long. It kind of very quickly degenerated. My brother-in-law thought I was on a suicide mission. Mm. So... I left the next day. We, you know, we didn't speak after that. I left the next day, and um, but I think over time they, well, my brother-in-law got a clear idea of what it was and why I was doing it. It's, it's yeah. my duty. I mean, it's. But it's, I mean, um, that's, that that's feels wonderful. like a very rational response from a loved one telling you this is what I'm going to do, and I'm prepared to put my life on the. I'm prepared to die for this. You, I can't imagine. Um, you know, having that conversation and um, as frustrating, I guess, as it must have been for you that, that, that it sort of degenerated, but that you can understand why that would, that would, um, that would happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and how old, how old are your nieces and uh, your nephews and niece? So my oldest uh, nephew, my godson is uh, just turned 22. Oh, wow. But, but the others are uh teenagers except the youngest who's 12. So old enough to you know they're not sort of preschool and you know old enough to engage with this to know what you're doing to understand it to have conversations with you about it and um, what yes. was so, what was their reaction? So I didn't speak to them directly about what I was doing yeah except to one of my nephews I did during the during the time but but I only spoke to their parents and yeah, I, I didn't want to speak to them directly about it. So you've made this enormous sacrifice for this very reasonable request. It's now happening, as you said at the beginning, the afternoon of the 11th of July. The request or the very reasonable request now for, for us as members of the public, what would you like us to do to support this briefing? Um, so it's really, really so important. Uh, it's crucial that as uh, many members of the public as possible uh, reach out to their MPs, um, writing to them, asking them to attend this most crucial of briefings. So um, on my Twitter profile, my Twitter handle is Angus underscore climate. Uh, my most recent post, there's a link on there, which has got a link to the various steps uh, that one can take to first of all find out 
in the constituency in which you live, in which a member of the public lives, uh, who the MP is, mm -hmm. and then also uh, as part of that link, which is on change.org's website, there's also a template letter that everyone can use to write to the MPs. Yeah. So I think that I, th I think that's really really important. It's um, because sorry. it's a voluntary briefing, isn't it? There's no compulsion or no yeah. sort of whip or anything like that for MPs to attend. Yes, uh, the way I understand it is MPs, in, in essence, work for themselves and there's no way to oblige them to attend this briefing. Wow. So it, that's why it's really, really important for uh, their constituency to, you know, for them to see that the constituency is really concerned about climate change. So the, the, the awareness in the public has really increased so significantly in recent years so the vast majority of the UK public sees climate change as, as a real presence and significant issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Um, and so the letters that will be written to MPs is an appeal that the MPs attend the briefing. And I uh, think so sometimes we feel, as you said, this is a wicked, like complex situation and very difficult to feel like we can do anything about it. And if we can all write to our MPs and we can get our MPs to attend and really importantly, they start to take the situation seriously and policies develop, you know, that's huge. And it literally will take, I promise you, because I've done it like less than five minutes to send this email. And if we can do that and we can follow up and we can ask our MPs, that could have an absolutely massive impact. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really so important. We've got... Um, so there's health healthcare professionals who, um, and there's many of them. I, I think, well, there were 29 eminent health experts who wrote an open letter to Boris uh, in the British Medical Journal talking about the importance of having this briefing. And there were also 79 eminent scientists as well. But on, on the healthcare side, uh, there's health experts who are currently reaching out to others who are in the you know, health profession trying to encourage them to attend the briefing because at its core this is a, a human health issue mm. so yes there's many people who signed up to a petition um who hopefully have received uh, an email asking them to write to the mps but yes this is so so important so the briefing is going to be on um uh like 10 days away mm. and there's still time to write to the MPs for them to see the letters, whether it's by post or by email. Um, and the more they receive, the more pressure they will sense. Yeah, absolutely, because actually I, I sent my, my MP the letter and he actually emailed me back really quickly and said, uh, no, I can't attend. So I was like, oh, crap, what do I do now? Um, and somebody suggested on Twitter, actually, well, ask if a member of his party, if his team can attend. No, they can't. But I believe you're happy to receive a briefing letter. And that, so, which leaves me feeling incredibly frustrated. But I guess if my letter is one, just one letter, it's very easy for him to dismiss that. If my letter is one of 20 or one of 100 or and it doesn't need to be, you know, every constituent, does it? Like 20 letters about the same thing probably starts to make an MP think, oh, oh, actually, this is something that's important. It, it would be really quite difficult for them to miss, uh, you know, many letters, emails and written letters um, appearing. So, I mean, like, because we, we had that 
there was uh, one of the, the support team went to uh, Bayes, which is where Greg Hands works from, and um, spoke to the front desk. And the front desk was very aware that uh, about the hunger strike mm, <laughs> because that would be so much correspondence. So, so you know, it's really important. I think although many MPs will unfortunately be doing things on that date at that time, you know, or maybe they won't be in London or, you know, there, there may be various reasons why they can't attend. Um, but that's why also this recording is really important yes. to as another channel by which people can see this, uh, hear about the science. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking now, like, oh, I wonder if once the recording's available, I can invite him to a Zoom and we can sit and we can... <laughs> You know, yeah, so I can make yeah. sure that he's seen it because it's not going to be like an all day thing, is it? Presumably that, the, the, you know, it's going to try and be as concise as possible. It, it Yes, it will only be an hour and a half. So mm. the four scientists, they may, I would imagine, take 60 or 70 minutes. Mm. And then the remaining time would be left for uh, key questions. Yeah. So I, th you know, I think that's really important. Something else we hope, hopefully will come out of the briefing is a report so it'll be, in Guillermo's case, he had like a 20-page a IPCC-style report, right, which yeah. was um, the, the key uh, elements of the briefing, as well as references to substantiate important claims, and then also questions and answers. So coming out of the briefing, those people who weren't able to attend, um, and also for all of the public, the government, you know, uh, politicians and the media, there would then be a gold standard reference yes. that would be difficult for anyone to in future say something that is contrary to the science that was yeah. delivered during the briefing. We, mm. You know, the, that report would be so, so important. Yeah. So if everybody listening, please, I implore you, if we look at the sacrifices that Angus has, has gone to, to take five minutes out of our day to email our MPs, um, and as I said, you know, if, if you get a no like I have, go back to them with some other suggestions, but also then encourage friends and family and people in your constituency to write to them as well, because it may be that that no was the no to the first letter that they've received and was the first they've heard of the briefing. But actually, if they get 20, 50, 100 letters, then they might start to think that, you know, this is this is something that they need to um, be attending. So, yeah, just. Feel like in the face of your sacrifice that is the very least we can we can all do thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for the you know the incredible sacrifice that you made and and i'm absolutely in awe of the resilience the mental strength the dedication that you have so yeah massive thank you for me and i'm sure from everybody who's listening but you're an absolute inspiration Thank you so much, Jen. But uh, lastly, to say it was my duty and my level of sacrifice was in line with, you know, um, the level of risk that my nephews and niece face. So yeah. I think going, on for, going forward, that's hopefully how more people will approach you know, what level of, of uh, sacrifice they need to take. People changing their careers and scientists now mobilising and, and, and speaking up where previously they were quite... Well, this is so, so important. Too. You've been listening to Sustainable 
Spanish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review, and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is, and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time. Bye.